2: Greetings and welcome to the Diffusion Science Radio Show. The only science radio show that doesn't deny climate change. Actually, that's not true. Most of them agree with climate change. But anyway, we're the only science show... That you need. My name is Mark West, and coming to you this week, we're going to be talking about the development of affordable solar powered lighting. And we're also going to be splicing metal to Wolverine's bones in the last of our Science of Wolverine series. But first off, we've got an old favourite Correlation of the Week. And this week on Correlation of the Week, or as we like to call it, Correlation of the Week. We have a study that has found a correlation between someone's liberal views and whether they're an atheist and intelligence. Now, some people might have thought this for a while. A recent study, Why Liberals and Atheists Are More Intelligent published in Social Psychology Quarterly, has shown that more intelligent people are statistically significantly more likely to exhibit behaviours that have not been shaped by our evolutionary history. Specifically, Satoshi Kanazawa from the London School of Economics and Political Science postulates that liberalism, not to be confused with the Australian Liberal Party, a socially conservative political party, and atheism correlate with higher intelligence. Sexual exclusivity for men, but not women, is also a sign of higher intelligence. According to Kanazawa's theory, more intelligent people are more likely to adopt evolutionarily novel behaviours than less intelligent people. Evolutionarily novel values are those that humans are not biologically designed to have. The theory is known as the Savannah IQ Interaction Hypothesis. The savannah principle is the notion that the human brain was moulded through natural selection in an environment that is drastically different to the world in which we currently live. This means that it has difficulty comprehending and dealing with situations that did not exist in the ancestral environment, that is, on the savannah. An example of this is that our ancestors, in a time of scarce resource, craved sugary and fatty foods. Those who ate more of these foods at that time lived longer and were healthier than those who didn't. In today's environment, where such foods are plentiful, this craving brings on health problems. The Savannah IQ Interaction Hypothesis postulates that intelligence evolved to deal with novel problems, problems whose solutions evolution had not hardwired into us. More intelligent individuals can better deal with new situations than less intelligent individuals. However, both can deal equally well with evolutionarily familiar situations. Kanazawa said, General intelligence, the ability to think and reason, endowed our ancestors with advantages in solving evolutionarily novel problems, for which they did not have innate solutions. As a result, more intelligent people are more likely to recognize and understand such novel entities and situations than less intelligent people, and some of these entities and situations are preferences, values and lifestyles. Kanazawa argues that humans are evolutionarily designed to be conservative and to care mostly about their family, those who have similar genes. Caring for unrelated strangers, that is, being liberal, is evolutionarily novel. This theory is backed by the National Longitude Study of Adolescent Health, which found that young adults who identify themselves as very liberal have an average IQ of 106, while those who identify themselves as very conservative have an average IQ of 95. Kanazawa also argues that religion arose because of our desire to look for the cause of events and to ascribe meaning and intention to natural phenomena. Humans are innately paranoid and extremely vigilant when it comes to self-protection. This was an evolutionary benefit for human preservation on the dangerous savannah. The survey showed that young adults who identify themselves as not at all religious have an average IQ of 103, while those who identify themselves as very religious have an average IQ of 97. Kanazawa said, Humans are evolutionarily designed to be paranoid, and they believe in God because they are paranoid. So, more intelligent children are more likely to grow up to go against their natural evolutionary tendency to believe in God, and they become atheists. But what about sex? Throughout evolutionary history, it is theorized that men have been mildly polygamous in order to increase their chance of producing offspring, whilst women have generally been monogamous possibly due to the fact that a nine-month pregnancy means that having multiple partners does not increase the chance of producing offspring. Being sexually exclusive is evolutionarily novel for men, but not for women. Kanazawa's theory therefore predicts that more intelligent men are more likely to remain sexually exclusive, that is, monogamous, than less intelligent men. However, this does not hold for women. Again, the survey data supported this theory. But he also found that intelligence does not correlate with the very oldest evolutionary values. One finding was that more intelligent people are no more or less likely to value such evolutionarily familiar ideas such as marriage, family, children and friends. So congratulations, Satoshi Kanazawa, for finding that liberalism is correlated with intelligence. You have been awarded Correlation of the Week. Kimji Vaghiani is the winner of the 2010 Australian Innovator of the Year Award for the development of affordable solar-powered lighting through his new company, Solar Gem. Ian Wolfe caught up with him at the monthly Foresight Innovation Sustainability Hothouse meeting and asked him how profitability and humanity can go together to give light to the 1.6 billion people who are stuck with just candles and kerosene when the sun goes down.
1: So, I'm speaking to Kimji Vaggiani, CEO of Solar Gem. Well, tell me, what is the point yep. of Solar Gem? It's because it's in very new business, isn't it? Yes, it,
0: it is. Ian. Um, basically, we've developed a portable energy solution that you can use pretty much anywhere in the world, but specifically for remote and rural communities around uh, the developing world. So, people who have never had any uh, energy or any cl- connection to electricity, we've got a system uh, using solar energy to provide lighting for people and the objective is to replace uh, dangerous uh, uh, and harmful kerosene which is currently being used by uh, about a third of humanity. And that's like, you were saying, 1.6 billion people? That's right. Uh, the World Bank has uh, stated in a, in a document a few years ago that it's about 1.6 billion people who don't have access to electricity. And I think you're also talking in your
1: presentation that uh, kerosene lamps are very low power compared to the
0: electric lights that you'll
1: you'll be selling with your solar system.
0: That's right. So the luminosity, which is what's typically measured, is much lower than our solar LED technology. So the benefit of that is that you get more light for your dollar, effectively.
1: And so by doing so you're saving the health of the people who are relying on these really low light sources.
0: Yes, so that's one of the key aspects of our system, is that with kerosene you have of course smoke, Mm-hmm. You have the fumes that are very dangerous uh, and harmful. With our system, it's solar lighting, so there's no fumes and no smoke. So people can use them for a bit longer than, say, two hours or three hours mm-hmm. uh, that they would use for uh, a kerosene lamp. So your basic system that you'll be selling,
1: uh, as uh, as I recall, so it's the solar panels, it's a controller, uh, the battery
0: and the lights. That's right. So the whole system uh, you can you can buy from us. Uh, and that can also be used to recharge mobile phones mm-hmm. uh, and a small laptop as well. And so, what's happening is that apart from light, uh, people have got mobile phones in their pockets in the developing world, So, but they need to charge them. So, we offer that facility on the one system. So, about how many square metres of solar
1: panel does this system take to start with?
0: Uh, yeah, only, well, it depends on the usage, but typically you would only need uh, uh, two or three square metres. Uh, wow. So a typical uh, north-facing roof uh, would, do the, would, do, would provide a, up, to four, up to six lights in a house or in an in a eco home or a school uh, or, a hut. or a hospital or a hut. Uh, and that's the beauty of this system. It's very scalable and very modular. And you were saying that there was a hospital in the Congo that's using this? That's right. We've uh, sent one unit off in an emergency ward. In a hospital there, what happens is a light often goes off while the surgeon is doing a heart operation, for example. What they do then is turn on candles for wow. lighting. Uh, in this instance, they will be using our lights. As soon as the light uh, electricity goes off, they'll turn on our solar lighting system and continue with the operation. So that'll be saving even more lives? It'll be saving more lives, that's right.
1: And I believe you were asked to supply some units to Haiti for their disaster.
0: That's right. It's a recent uh, inquiry uh, and we're looking to provide that through funded through the Rotary Club.
1: Right. And just to give people an idea of just how much more affordable these solar systems are than the traditional ones that have been available, about how much does this unit cost?
0: So a unit uh, would cost uh, between eight hundred to twelve hundred dollars, depending mm-hmm. on you know if it's a two light system or a, or a four light system. Because because it's scalable and modular, you can have one or two or five or six lights. So that depends on then the panels, uh, number of panels you need to recharge the battery. And, of course, the number of lights that you need. So it's very scalable. At the moment, that's what the pricing is. But we believe that it will come down over time uh, and become even more affordable for more communities around the world. Absolutely. And you were talking about some
1: clever solutions to get this into the hands of villages in the third world that don't have any lighting at all. Yes. We're talking about...
0: Billing systems? That's right. So, what we have in on board uh, our system is a billing system, very much like your meter, electricity meter at home, but on board we have that. So, basically, what that allows an NGO, a non government organisation who's doing charitable work and good work in the field, or, or maybe a corporate social responsibility of a bank or a telecommunications company to, to provide um, these systems to a village and then also charge rather than giving it away, there's a, a return. On that investment of a few dollars a month mm-hmm. that few dollars a month is probably equivalent to the candles or the wood or the kerosene that they may use so it's very comparable to existing uh, cost of light
1: but you're also talking to some of the micro banks right.
0: as well that's right so we're, we're instigating a couple of discussions with these organizations who would then effectively buy our systems. Install them, or get an, uh, an, a local entrepreneur to install them, and to provide the credit for the energy. So it will create jobs as well within the communities for the microfinancing or the micro lending. And you're also
1: talking about the possibility of people being able to donate these to villages instead of, like, the, I think the system about like goats that yes. you can you can get a goat
0: to a village. You might be able to get lighting to a village. Absolutely. And wh- what we're looking to do is to provide a facility on our website that where you can give you know you, you give light to people um, and so they can make a ten dollar a hundred dollar donation and then what we're looking to do is once we've got enough uh... to build units we will then work with our uh... uh NGO partners um, and give people who are donating the option of uh, selecting Asia or Africa or the Pacific region to say well I'd like this to unit to go into Africa for example so we'll work with our uh, partners that we're de- de- developing relationships and basically say there you go here's something that the community, global community has donated for you to continue doing the work that you're doing in, the, in these poor communities
1: and um, one of the other things that struck me were just how quickly you got this business off the ground.
0: Yeah, so we uh, had the original idea uh, probably sort of late 2008. A lot of research went in, uh, of course, prior to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the real sort of grunt work... Of designing the business model and also the technology started probably around uh, April, May, June of last year, and we developed the technology during the latter part of last year, and all the business relationships and all the sales to date and and the f- potential future sales uh, happened over a, you know a six month period. Terrific! So finally, for people to get a good picture,
1: you've got what super bright, low energy LEDs of the lighting, That's right. and you've got sealed lead-acid batteries, That's which are right. the latest in lead-acid technology, and That's they're right. going to last a, a long time. Yes. About, you're saying, maybe 10 years?
0: Well, about 15 to 20, uh, but what we're saying is that we believe the guarantee period for our whole system is about 10 years. Right, right, so it may
1: last past the guaranteed
0: that's time, right. Or it may not, but it it lasts do. at least 10 it years. It could do. And it's very much like your TV. You know, you, you hmm. get the warranty for three years, but it typically lasts for five or six years or seven years or even more sometimes. Yeah.
1: Terrific. Well, what's the
0: website people want to go and check you out? Yes, it's www.solar-gem.asia. Terrific. Uh, Kimji, thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Ian.
2: That was Kimji Vaghiani founder of Solar Gem, and winner of the 2010 Australian Innovator of the Year Award, bringing electricity and light to the world. For more information, visit the website at www.solar-gem.asia. That's www.solar-gem.asia. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Recently, we've talked a little bit about creating Wolverine. Well, this week, we're going to try and splice metal to Wolverine's bones. Can it be done? I recently spoke to our expert in these things, Dr. Christopher Pettigrew, a.k.a. Dr. Boob. I guess the biggest uh, the biggest problem, even bigger than the healing, the biggest problem in making mm. Wolverine might be uh, splicing his bone to the metal. What do you yes. think about that?
3: I think this is where we might get some problems. Okay. Uh, yeah, assuming that we've been able to satisfy the previous elements yeah. <laughs> of Wolverine.
2: Assuming we've overcome all those hurdles so far.
3: Exactly. Right. Um, so, look, the use of metals and bone healing has been... Been you know, used for for a while, and we all know about people who've had a nail or a screw in, inserted into a broken bone to, to aid the healing. Yeah, these are mainly just to, to keep the bone fragments in, in place. But it is possible for the patient to react against these metal implants. So they can cause irritation and bursitis and tendonitis, etc. So at the very least, we're looking at putting our wolverine on immunosuppressants. Yes, but then. There's a few other problems as well.
2: I hope his so, immunosuppressants
3: don't interact with his steroids. Well, assuming that there's no, no issues there and cross-reactions. Mm. We're also thinking... You know, I, I can't remember the movie precisely enough, but in my head, he, the metal coats his entire skeleton.
2: I, I think so, yeah.
3: The problem seen... there is that the bone is actually living tissue. So yes. if you coat the entire skeleton with it, you're going to, by necessity... Cut off the blood supply. Yes. And so you're going to kill off the skeleton. Well, that, you know, on the first instance, probably not going to be a problem if you've got this funky metal skeleton. You don't really need to maintain the bones inside if it's that strong.
2: That's right. Yep. If it can completely replace the bones.
3: Exactly. But the problem is that bones don't just supply support. Because inside the bones, you've got things like bone marrow. Yes. And bone marrow, say, red bone marrow, produces the red blood cells. So they're great for getting oxygen around the body. Kind of useful. They last about 100 to 120 days. But after that, you're going to need some more. So we're either looking at a lot of blood transfusions, which yeah. might you know, combine with the immunosuppressants and the testosterone. Yes. Uh, but then it's not just red blood cells. We're looking at the white blood cells as well. Basically, your immune system. Again, if you're on immunosuppressant drugs, your immune system being blocked kind yes. of maybe not that necessary
2: that's right yeah
3: but then the other aspect that bone marrow produces is platelets now these only last about eight to ten eight to twelve days but what they're really good for is blood clots
2: which we so might need for our healing you
3: it together if you've got uh, wolverine running around having fights and getting beaten up and getting the odd cut yeah and he's not able to uh heal himself by clotting blood We've kind of lost the whole point.
2: That's right. Yeah, so we need to be really careful in this uh, that uh, unless we can think of some other way to provide the Mm. body with all the platelets and the red blood cells and whatnot, Uh, so you'd have to be constantly on drip, we can't coat the bone with with the metal.
3: No. We might just have to do a limited sort of structural here and there type skeletal support system. Certainly, wouldn't be able to coat the whole thing.
2: Uh, I guess. I guess the the iconic Wolverine thing is that is the metal in his claws. That would be something mm. we
3: could do. I guess. Oh, I'd say that would be fine. I don't think the bone marrow is only in the larger bones. So.
2: so we could do his claws, and we could do his feet. And
3: probably you yeah, know, do a uh, wrap around the skull just for a bit of support there.
2: That's right. Well, people have have plates in their head for when they've had exactly. It. So we could do that. We just need to make sure that. Uh, we're not blocking off all the blood. So what would you recommend? Yep. What do you think we should do
3: then? In terms of what metal we're going to use, mm. I think we've also got problems. Ah. So we were talking a bit before about what what metals might be suitable for, for strength and so on. Uh, not, not
2: adamantium, you don't...
3: Uh... I, I don't... There's one thing I don't recall from the movie about adamantium, and that was the melting temperature.
2: Well, I don't... I, yeah, these fictitious metals don't seem to... They, their properties aren't really very well-defined, are they?
3: It was certainly liquid when they applied it. That's right. They, they they
2: just sort of injected him,
3: didn't they? Do you, off the top of the head, know what the melting temperature of, say, steel would be?
2: Um, I don't. I It would it'd be th- over a 1,000 degrees, I imagine.
3: Right. And what do you think the uh, consequences of putting molten steel... The <laughs> bone would be. Um it'd
2: probably would be like a like a Swedish massage. It'd be very very comfortable.
3: Uh yeah. Now <laughs> despite the enhanced healing properties that our Wolverine character might have. Yes. I suspect that steel could probably be ruled out as an option.
2: Yeah, we might have a bit of a problem here. This this whole liquid metal might be a bit uh mm. dubious.
3: Now now hang on a second. Don't oh. rule it out just that quick. Okay. There are I've been uh, looking up my alloys.
2: Yes, and
3: uh, I found an alloy that may be somewhat useful mm. in terms of its melting. See, what I the way I was looking at it was we needed a melting temperature of somewhere between forty and fifty degrees. Okay, any more than that would be serious, yes. serious trauma. Obviously, besides the surgery and whatnot. Yep. So I found one called uh, ceralo one one seven.
2: ceralo one one seven.
3: So that has a melting temperature of forty seven point two two degrees Celsius.
2: That's in our range, only slightly above um body temperature? It's
3: only well, ten degrees here or there. Hmm. Not too bad. So uh, I can tell you the components of that. Yes. So you got uh forty seven percent bismuth, twenty-two point six percent lead, eight point three percent tin, five point three percent cadmium. And 19.1% indium.
2: I imagine uh, the body might not like the lead and uh, I can't off the top of my head remember but I'm not sure it would be a massive fan of the cadmium either.
3: Correct, in fact I have here written in my notes, lead and cadmium are cumulative poisons.
2: Oh good, okay.
3: So they're not good things just to have you know, stuck inside your body permanently. Yes. Yes. But then again, this is Wolverine, he's got healing powers, he'll be fine.
2: Yeah, well, uh, we, uh, we're up to this stage. We've assumed we've got the healing sorted. So, yeah, okay.
3: that, that's that's the thing that enables everything else.
2: Yes, that's right.
3: Certainly but, in terms of the movie. Anyway.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, so how strong is uh, Ceruleo 117?
3: I, I actually couldn't find much data on that at all. So I'm going to run with not very strong.
2: Yeah, I'm going to imagine if it, if it melts at, at 40-odd degrees, then it's probably mm. uh, not the strongest.
3: Well, lead and tin aren't terribly strong from my experience either so
2: let's assume then that he that he can't fight in the tropics
3: correct exactly right i'd imagine that uh, once he works up a bit of a sweat and you know perhaps working somewhere in you know the equator he could be in all sorts of trouble so i think we're going to have to keep him back up in the northern tundra which is where he comes from anyway so that's not too much of a problem i'd say
2: okay all right well that's so we we're confining him to northern latitudes uh, and we 're putting lead mm. and cadmium in him, so it 's becoming very difficult to make old wolverine isn 't it
3: there's a there's a few issues there all right yeah
2: yeah, and so if we if uh C- ceruleo one one seven turned out to be an appropriate metal uh strong mm. um, uh, let's say that somehow it it hardens at uh thirty five degrees and it just you know it 's like diamond well, uh yes. It could be. Um, what's next? Or have, or have we made him now?
3: Well, if, if we're able to do all of that, I think, think we're sorted.
2: I think we are. We've, mm. got, a, we've got a pretty drug-addled, small testicle. He's poisoned. If, if he sustains any injuries, he'll, he'll, mm. he'll heal himself, but he needs to go back to the lab and hang out there for about a month.
3: For about a month on a drip, on yeah. a
2: drip. Uh, and that drip may also, depending on how we go with this metal, may also be delivering him platelets and red blood cells.
3: An entire new blood system. He's... And immunosuppressant drugs and hormones. and Yeah, so I think basically what we're looking at is Wolverine, who can fight for about five minutes and then be stuck in a lab with a whole lot of tubes going into his body for the next month.
2: He's not really the ultimate fighting machine, is he?
3: No. No. Not yet. <laughs>
2: last week we rated it a a 2% chance that we could make him in the lab mm. do you think that on reflection that's that's too low or do you think do you think we've got a greater chance now
3: well i guess it all depends um if we're talking about how how realistic is it to get him exactly like the movies i'd say I'd stick at 2% but if if we're looking at a 5 minute window of having all those characteristics then i'd say the possibility is is up
2: okay so we could, we might be able to make something that's like him.
3: Yes. Yeah. In our
2: secret lair. I'm pretty happy with that. I don't know if I'd hire him. <laughs> sounds like he'd be very expensive to hire because he's got quite a number of, you know, well, the, the drugs. I'm sure are very expensive. Well, you can take like,
3: like the course. upkeep is is quite is the killer is. there. I mean, it's one thing to invest in in making him, but then to maintain him. Well, maybe
2: maybe it's a bit of a cottage industry we could start here. You'd need to employ, you know, doctors and nurses and metallurgists, uh, and mm. biochemists. Um, I imagine you'd have to employ a number of human rights lawyers.
3: I'd say phlebotomist. They are well, they the people that take your blood. Oh right. Great great word isn't it?
2: It's a fantastic word. If I had to guess what uh, what phlebotomists did, I wouldn't have guessed taking blood. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> There you go. There you
3: go. Mr. Science, educational. Educational.
2: Dr. Boob, (laughs) educational. (laughs) That was Dr. Krista Pettigrew and myself trying to figure out how exactly to make Wolverine in the laboratory. I think we're some chance, but we're a little way off yet. And that's all the time we've got in this week's edition of the Diffusion Science Radio Show. My name is Mark West, and the other voice you heard on today's show was Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney and has been broadcast across Sydney on 2SCR and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Perhaps you're listening to us on our podcast. Get over to www.diffusionradio.com to hear our backstories and to leave any comments that you might like or to get in touch with any of the team. Thanks again for joining us on the Diffusion Science Radio Show. My name is Mark West. We'll catch you next week.